What is a monster? Merriam-Webster evokes images of gargantuan animals, threatening forces, abnormality, and unnatural cruelty. What comes to mind with this word monster? And what does it mean to use this word to refer to a person? Coming on to explore that today is Sean Dukes, a writer, storyteller, social justice advocate, father, student, and initiate of the Egyptian mysteries in the Kemetic tradition. And in our case today, someone with insights into the justice system and into the deeper meanings of the word monster. Sean has been a friend of mine for about 10 years now. This today is the first of, I hope, many podcasts and collaborations to come. Sean's story will pierce your heart, pull the rug out from under you, and leave your assumptions about our justice system lying in shambles. Shambles which actually might begin to resemble the actual state of affairs in our criminal justice system in the United States of America. His story leaves us raw and exposed. As opposed to the theater of open and shut cases we see on television and in the newspapers, Sean's story is about deep personal suffering at the hands of our culture's system of law and justice, the ways in which that system misses all the relevant details. And throughout all of that, the even deeper alchemical work Sean has engaged in to hold, understand, and empower himself throughout the trials and experiences of his life. So please, listen closely. Do you hear a monster amongst us? I want to shine a light on what justice should be, you know, uh, justice that has happened, for, especially for the juveniles. Like, because there's, I mean, it's, it's, I know it's, it's probably worse than it was when I was that age. And so it's like, I know a lot of kids are getting like slammed. And I mean, in, in a lot of situations, they have done some really bad things. I mean, whether it's murder or whatever. And But at the same time, it's still like their kids, they don't know. Their mind is not even fully developed. And I realized that. I realized that my mind is not fully developed. So for this man to call me a monster, it hurt me so deep to my soul that I didn't realize at the time why I was so hurt by what he said. Uh, there's a question coming up for me that I think I've wanted to ask you, and maybe I have asked you, but I'm going to be more direct here, I think, with it. I think that it seems like the the working with the story has been kind of uh, double-pronged for you or double-edged in the way that it's... Um, allowing you to, you know, some of the positive things you've, you've worked with and some of the opportunities that are coming from it. Um, 
and maybe even some of the therapeutic like plus side of really getting into the details and into how you claim space with the story. But, uh, it, you know, it, it sounds like as there naturally would be, there's also the ripple effect or the, the, the reaction, right, to stepping back into that trauma. Yeah. And so I think I guess what I would like to know is um, a little bit more about that darker side, about that, like the story coming back and affecting you the next yeah. day. Would you be willing to say anything more about that? Sure. Most definitely. Um, so some of the things that kind of come up when I revisit it is just like different parts of the my experience um, from not only just me getting me getting arrested and um, the whole process leading up to my incarceration and the highlighted aspect of the judge calling me a monster and you know how that was kind of like an attack on my psyche you know and a, an attack on my condition of trauma um even without me even knowing at the time that I was traumatized that I was traumatized mm-hmm. and affected by some things and how that even further um, kind of like pull me down into a into a pit so to speak and kind of what had that weight that sat on me like that but I think when I review this when I go over the story or even if I'm just thinking in my head about you know some of my experiences from childhood, I have like several different triggers and that like, for example, I think about my father and my relationship with him or the non-existent relationship with him, you know, or the different times that he was in my life and different things that he has done, you know, directly um, to my mother and me, you know, um, as an, as an example, you know, my father had a drug addiction as well. Uh, My mother ended up telling me that when I was still younger, maybe, you know, as a baby and up until about nine, he was doing, she found out he was shooting heroin. And, um, and I think like kind of since then, you know, it was a point in time where he was in the house, he, you know, but then it was like, it started being where he was gone. And then some things happened with him and he ended up leaving and he would come around maybe every three months or, you know, pop up every now and then out of any, out of nowhere. And then most of the time it was, um, when he would come in, it was kind of like, hi, buddy, you know, and I love you. But then it's like, he's in the room, my mom spending time with her, like talking to her, whatever they were doing. And then he, when he comes back out, he, I, I'm about to go, buddy. But one of the things that he would do to me is that he would give me money when he would come in. He might give me like $20. And, and then before he left, he would come back to me and say, hey, buddy, I need that $20 back. I'll give you I'll give you double next time. And so it became like this psychological game every every time he did this. Every time he came to see me, he would do this. And as a kid, thinking back, it was like it began to where I expected it. And it was like it was this game we were playing. He's gonna give me some money and he's gonna ask me back for it. He's gonna give me double next time. So I'm gonna give it back to him, you know. And um my father, uh my mother was working at a hospital at that time and we lived behind the hospital. And um, my father had, uh, I guess, basically stole my mother's uh, debit card, went and bought me a a 10-speed bike for my birthday, 
left on the porch, called me in the morning and said, hey, buddy, I got something for you. Go look out on the porch. Tell me happy birthday. So when I go outside, I see the bike. I'm like, oh, I'm on the phone like that. Thank you. I love you. You know, and think, and in my mind, I'm like, he really did something for me. He really, you know, it was like a, it was a good sign of him maybe improving on being a father to me, you know. So come to when my when my mom my mom gets off work, and I she's like, where you get the bike from? And I'm like, my, you know. So she, make a long story short, that's what happened. He stole her car and went and bought me the bike to make it seem like right. Um, not only that, one time someone broke in our house. Um, it was, this was maybe like 1990, 91 or something like that. Um, I had to be maybe uh, 10 or 11 years old still, maybe maybe 11 years old. And some, and it was like around New Year's Eve, we went to my grandmother's house, I think. And we came home, someone had busted out the window and came in. They took my um, Nintendo video game, a VCR, and some of those old school antennas that sat on TV. And so um, my father, one day, he ended up picking up me and my older sister you know, we're like, okay, you know, whenever it was times like this, they would come get us. We were thinking like, okay, maybe, you know, I don't know what she was thinking, but probably the same thing. Okay, he's trying to spend some time, you know, improving our relationship. He ended up taking us to this house. And when we get in the house, uh, there's, an, there's a little boy in there and there's another girl. Little girl is maybe like, maybe a one year younger than me. And the little boy is maybe like, he's probably like six or something like that. And so, you know, I'm a kid, so I don't think anything of it. I start playing with the little boy. I don't know what my sister was doing or what my dad was doing. The little boy, I just, out of nowhere, he just like, he's like, daddy, daddy. And so I'm looking around like, what's he calling daddy? You know, turns out this is my half-sister and half-brother. And he didn't even introduce us, you know. And um, as we were leaving, me and my sister were like walking side by side through that house and... Um, I saw, we saw our VCR. We saw our rabbit ears that went to our television. And um, so we pretty much put it together like we stole and gave to the other kids or whatever happened with that. Mentally, I understand now and I understand it. But at the same time, it still affects me. You know, like in my mind, I'm like, oh, maybe, you know, not trying to justify him or anything like that, but just I don't know what he went through growing up. I don't know what his relationship with his father is as far as him knowing how to be a, a man and a father. Um, but, you know, it's just uh, it still affects me, even though I understand it. And it's uh, it kind of like developed this thing where I start telling myself, like, well, I start developing trust issues. Well, if my own father doesn't love me because that's how I felt. Like, if he loved me, he would be here. He would be doing this. He doesn't even call me, you know. And then when I ran into situations with my mother with the drug addiction and things like that, I started feeling the same way with her. Like, she basically went to college to become an RN, and you kind of let it all go because of drug addiction. So it was like a point where my our lives started improving um, with my mother going to college and graduating and becoming an RN. But then with the drug addiction, that soon started taking hold and everything started kind of being reversed. And um, so, I mean, it was just a lot of situations I was going through with them, I guess, mentally. And we would literally sometimes get into arguments, you know, and both be sitting there crying. So it's just a lot of things like that that kind of affected me. It contributed to me being angry, to developing anger, to having an I don't care type of attitude, like feeling no one cares about me, then why should I care? You know, and I think that was me trying to protect myself 
um, mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, when we look at trauma, you know, uh, the past is not distant, whether we're talking about in our own lives, but also in terms of like our gene code like the things that our parents went through, our biological parents or other people who raised us, their situation as children, even though we didn't live through that and we don't have access to it, like with knowledge, our bodies have access to that and feel that, you know? Yes. And sometimes like as men standing in like a line of ancestors, the most recent is the father. And we have to decide how much we're going to accept and how much we're going to reject of what they pass to us. But it's not just that easy, right? It's not just like, oh, I like these things and I don't like these things or I don't like any of it. So I'll just be a new man. Uh, It actually is like swimming upstream against the the patterns that have been given to us. Um, And same with. Even as a male, the matriarchal lineage is just as important. And so the experiences of our grandmother and our mother and how they raise us, like surround us and create this, the scene on which we step into the world. Um, I want to say thank you, Sean, for, for coming today and for opening up about, about some of these things. And I know uh, it's going to be, um, a deep discussion. I I just want to offer to you uh, if for any reason you don't feel like telling, whether that's continuing with some of the stories you're you're starting with here uh, or actually getting into the story itself, that's uh, totally fine. I just want to like open up a a space for just saying we have lots of stuff we, you and I can talk about today. So uh, it's up to you. No, I'm okay. I'm all, I'm all right. And and that's the thing is that it's like I'm dealing with it on one level to where it kind of affects me, but not as bad as it used to. Started talking to um, my therapist and she diagnosed me with the PTSD and, and she explained to me everything to the point to where I understood and I, I understood better why I react a certain way. And I started being able to monitor myself. Like, for example, one of the things that I know about that I've learned about myself is that I'm very, very uh, security oriented uh, because of being uh, a victim of that victim of a home invasion. And and it it created a, a, I started living a certain type of way, not just with carrying the gun when I was younger, but, you know, just how watching my surroundings, watching who I'm with, what's going on, you know, and I'm like that. I watch everything around me when I'm in the house. I make sure, you know, check the windows and everything like that you know i mean everybody does that before bed and stuff like that but like i'm always checking on things making sure things are secure you know watching my environment um even the people that live around me um one word for that is uh hyper vigilance you know like constantly being on alert and i think honestly that the the carceral experience uh really does does you no favors in that regards as well right so if you're already coming in with that background of not just like, you know, when we say insecurity, we often mean like emotional insecurity, but in this case, literal physical insecurity. Um, And then you're put in a place where you have no privacy. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely uh, that plays a part in as well. And I didn't realize it at the time I understand now, but even in there, I mean, I didn't really 
I kind of basically dealt with that situation. Kind of like, you know, you're in there, you know what what people, people that haven't experienced incarceration, they have a set of thoughts concerning what that is based off of movies. Maybe someone in their family that might have been incarcerated and shared some. But the first thing is that the first thing they want to ask you when somebody does have the courage to ask someone that's been incarcerated a long time is they want to know if you were like raped or something like that. You know, and that stuff does happen. I mean, I've seen things, I've seen stabbings, I've seen people, you know, um, not necessarily physically raped, but I've heard things and I've known people that were trying to kind of like, I guess, coach someone into it or or set the stage for it. And so, you know, I mean, I came up a certain type of way. I mean, um, the way that I grew up and the environment I grew up in, you know, even in school, I was fighting. You know, and it wasn't because I was violent or uh, or anything like that. I was I've always been like a calm, uh, relaxed type of person, thoughtful person, not talk, not talkative, mostly quiet. Um, but I people that I'm familiar with or that's close to me, I do more, you know, talking. I just have a sense of humor. But uh, and I think that I've always like throughout my life, I've always had situations where uh, I'm usually cool with people. You know, but every now and then I come across someone who they, I guess, I don't know if it's because of my quietness or something. It's like they try to, you know, see where I'm at or something like that. Or as someone would say, figure you out, you know, or test you. And so it was usually when I got into a lot of situations like that, that I would defend myself or, you know, depending on what the situation was, I might strike first, you know, um, just because, you know, that's the nature of that situation. But um I've come to understand, you know, uh, I have a sense of humor, but I don't really, I don't really joke. I was very mature, I think, from my age. And um, I just conducted myself a certain way that that kind of commanded respect. Um, and so I never really had any issues. There were situations where I could have gotten into a physical altercation, but I chose to think my way through the situation. Um, I know I had to see the parole board. Uh, and not only that, I wasn't trying to put myself in a situation to where something violent did happen and then it, you know, it escalated because a lot of times, you know, you have to be vigilant of the fact that you might get, you can, it's not the street. So, you know, coming up, you can get into a fight and you be friends after that, you know, and there um, you get into a fight depending on who wins or loses or what the situation is. Somebody might want to come back and retaliate. Now I'm going to, you beat me up or, you, you know, you got the best of me. So now I'm going to come in the morning and I'm going to come in your cell and I'm going to stab you to death type of situation so you had to be prepared for that you know but and I started working on myself as well at a young age um I mean I took like anger management and understood more about anger and I started connecting the um roots to my anger and kind of started to relax to where I didn't really have that anger issue like that to where I felt like somebody makes me angry then straight to fight in or I have to punch a hole through a wall or or throw something or something like that I think that from everything I know of your story, I would describe like a, I don't use this word lightly, but a certain level of destiny in some of your experience as a kid that initiated you into certain levels of understanding yourself and understanding the world around you. And I think that's something we'll get into a little bit later in this discussion, perhaps, is uh, talking a little bit about some of those um, 
early experiences uh, of even what some might call like the paranormal or the visionary uh, that you've shared with me recently. Um, I'm wondering though, if, uh, if you're comfortable doing it, uh, would it be all right to go ahead and uh, launch into the story itself? Um, Kind of as you told it last week, but feel free to, to jam on it or take it a different direction if you want. But I think, uh, we can get sure. that content in there. It was the fifth grade career day. A police officer came to speak to my class. He asked us, what do you want to be when you grow up? I raised my hand. I said that I wanted to be an architect. My childhood hobby was drawing. I used to draw my favorite cartoons. I never sketched a person, but I knew I had potential and talent. I also dreamed of being an astronaut. I love looking at the stars. Unfortunately, my dream would never come true. I found myself in juvenile detention again. The last time that I was here, I was 14. Bow it up. Shoulder to shoulder, parade rest. Commands an officer would give as we lined up, folding our hands behind our back to cross the yard. This time, my hands were not behind my back. Instead, I carried a white laundry bag with my state issue from the quartermaster. Three shirts, three pants, three white t-shirts, three pairs of socks, three pairs of underwear, a coat, a jacket, a towel, and a washcloth. As I walked up to the housing unit, a group of boys stood there laughing and pointing at me. They said, aha, we knew you'd be back. Suddenly I woke up relieved, but uneasy. It was just a dream, but it seemed so real. I sat up in bed and I said to myself, I ain't never going back. It seemed like a normal day besides the dream. Then again, nothing had been normal about my life. I will never forget March 5th, 1996. I was 17 trying to figure my life out. I have been trying to figure my life out since I was 12. I was raised in a single mother home. My father wasn't there for me. He left when I was five. I did not know what to do with that. The crack epidemic hit my family hard. I did not know what to do with that. I wore the same clothes to school almost every other day. I was lucky if I got a new pair of shoes to go with a new school year. My self-esteem was low. I did not know what to do with that. My face was hard like a statue. I got into a fight in the fifth grade in front of the whole class because a classmate said that one of my family members perform oral sex 
on his older brother for crack cocaine. I did not know what to do with that. All I did was feel anger. I felt that no one cared. My attitude became, if no one cares, then I don't care. I pressed play on the boombox. For the love of money by the rap group, Bone, Thugs and Harmony played as I got dressed. I should have been in school. I had recently dropped out of the 10th grade. I wanted to stay in school and learn and make something of myself, but I couldn't concentrate with everything that was going on around me. I would just go to class and lay my head down on the desk and go to sleep. The first time I went to drop out, my guidance counselor talked me into staying in school and joining the work program. I would go to class for half the day and then look for a job afterwards. I went to about three different job interviews, but I never got a call back. I got discouraged. I gave up. I decided that I was going to try selling crack. So I reached in the red Swisher sweet box and I grabbed the bag. I lifted my pillow and I grabbed the 45 automatic. My mother's boyfriend had given me the gun to protect myself because we had just moved into a new house in a dangerous neighborhood. He told me to never take it out of the house and I never did, not until I was the victim of a home invasion while I was visiting a friend. Imagine having a gun placed to the back of your head while you are face down on the floor. You can feel the cold metal and you are filled with the anticipation knowing you are facing an internal sunset. Fortunately, I survived the robbery. However, a seed of trauma fell upon the soil of my mind. And what sprung up was a vow to never allow my life to be in someone's hands ever again. From that day, the gun stayed on me. I went downstairs and I asked my mother for her car keys. She said, give me one. I know you got it. A family member took me to get some crack to re-up the night before and told my mother, I can't give you this, but I'll give you some money when I get back, I said. Her response, well, if you don't give me one, then you can't use my car. We argued and I stormed out the house. As the screen door slammed, I heard her yell, stay your ass off that block. Usually, it's still cold in March in Cleveland, but this day was nice. The sun was golden, shining bright, brightly through the clouds. I saw a yellow school bus and I briefly thought I should be in school. As I started walking down a back street, a blue blazer truck with tinted windows stopped at a stop sign in front of me. It sat there longer than normal. I felt like I was being watched. The thought quickly entered my mind, is this someone about to try and rob me? 
the truck made a left turn and stopped at the corner. A man jumped out and started coming towards me yelling what I thought was laid down. Before I knew it, the gun was in my hand. As I pointed the gun in his direction, the man ran and jumped back in the truck. As the truck sped off, I jumped up and down with adrenaline. Then boom, I pulled the trigger. The bullet hit the awning of a house that sat on the corner. Thankfully, no one got hurt. All it takes is the wrong place, the wrong time, and the wrong decision. And your life can be shot quickly down the rabbit hole. It all happened so fast. I did not have time to think. I reacted to what I thought was a robbery. My body said run. I ran in the opposite direction until I got to another street when I realized I still had the gun in my hand. I put the gun back in my waistband and as I turned the corner and started walking, a blue car with a blue light on its roof emerged from the street in front of me. Confused, I quickly thought, how did the police get here so fast? My body said, run. I pulled the gun out and turned to run when I saw a man hanging out of the door of a white truck shooting at me. My life did flash and my body shut down in the face of death. I fell to the ground and dropped the gun. All I could see was an army of feet raining down on my face and then the revelation of guns surrounding me. Police, don't move. Click and click. My hands were cuffed behind my back. Pressed against the police car, dazed, I stared up into the same clouds, which suddenly seemed much grayer. The police were approaching people, asking for drugs, conducting it conducting a buy and bust operation. What I thought was laid down was let me get a dime. The police did not believe I was 17. They were very angry with me. We could kill you and put you in this dumpster and no one would ever know or care, one cop said as we entered the police garage. If I was there, I would have killed your black ass. A female officer said that she walked up during my interrogation. The officer who jumped out of the truck told me to stand up, took the cuffs off, and then punched me in my stomach, knocking me back down into the chair. No one suffered physical harm, but I was bound over from juvenile court to be tried as an adult for attempted murder. I was indicted for five counts of felonious assault on police officers after I turned 18. I sat in the county jail for about eight months before I was indicted. All charges were on an attempt to cause basis. I was offered a plea deal of 10 to 25 years, but I refused. The bailiff brought my mother into the courtroom into tears. She pleaded with me to take the deal but I refused. I realized someone could have, could have been hurt or killed, but the fact is 
no one was hurt or killed. I never formed an intention to harm anyone. I reacted out of trauma. I was in fight or flight mode. The judge got angry with me when I didn't take the plea deal. He said, don't you know I can give you a hundred years? Then he said, I am going to make an example out of you. I went to trial and was found guilty. At sentencing, the judge asked if I had anything to say. I don't remember exactly what I said. I was too emotional, but I do remember saying something about doing better. Then the judge asked, do you want to know what I think about you? Then he yelled, I think you're a monster. The judge sentenced me to 21 to 36 years in prison. I started to cry. My public defender patted me on my back and said, take it like a man. My spirit was crushed. And after I lost my appeal, I was devastated. The hope that once flourished in my heart became a barren desert. I wanted to die. But in that moment, having tied two connected sheets around my neck, I saw three choices. One, I could kill myself and I wouldn't be in prison anymore. Two, I can continue being angry about my life and continue down the wrong path. Or three, I could stay strong and fight to reclaim my freedom and disprove the judge's assertion that I am a monster. I chose number three. Merriam-Webster's definition of monster number five is one that is highly successful. Altogether, I did 17 years. I got a parole my first term, my first time. I got a parole my first time at the parole board. Waiting to hear if you have a parole or not is the longest wait of your life. I have been home eight years now. Against all odds, I turned a negative into a positive. I got my GED when I was 19. I went to college. I learned graphic design. I learned and did whatever I could do to better myself and prepare for freedom. Being called a monster only fueled my drive to create a more successful. Being called a monster only fueled my drive to create a more successful future for myself and now my six-year-old son. The judge got it wrong. I am not a monster. I am one that is highly successful. Thank you. Yeah, so. Breathe that in, breathe that in. Yeah. Thank you, Sean. Uh, I just wanna say on, on behalf of my own life, since we met, um, probably what, 10 years ago now, or close to that, yeah. nine years ago. Yeah. Um, 
And on behalf of all of our listeners as well, we're, we're really glad that you chose option number three. And we're astounded at your ability to alchemically transform um, the amount of injustice, violence, and pain that you didn't deserve that rained down on your life. And, uh, you know, I'm at a loss for words. I guess the, what I want to highlight there is it wouldn't be right to expect any little boy, because that's frankly what we all are, even at 17. Um, or any of the earlier experiences that you've detailed to be ready to digest for anyone to be ready to digest that level of brutality, injustice, violence, and pain, but to be able to take it in, uh, to take that punch to the gut and still turn around and face those sheets, right? That could have been your ticket out and say, no, I'm not done with this. I'm not done with this world. I'm not done with me. Um, is so fucking intense. Like I want to call it beautiful, but it's, it's, it's terrible and beautiful. Your story. How did it feel telling it this time? Uh, you know what? It's, it's weird because it's like, I wrote that. I mean, and it's my story. I know it. It's just more so in, in the story form. It's more chrono- chronological for me, you know, uh, and it's not necessarily in order, but it's it's almost like I'm listening to myself, if that makes any sense. So it's, and I'm and I'm examining and examining also some of the things that I'm talking about, like, wow. And, you know, my therapist, she always tells me, you know, she talks about being in survival mode. And doing things out of survival mode, especially being a child. And she always tells me to give myself some grace. And so I've been learning how to just, you know, not get too emotional in thinking about it and just trying to, I guess, um, complete the goal of becoming basically one with the story. Like, I, I understand it. And at this point, it does affect me to a certain degree, but not as bad because I understand it better. And, and I actually just take it. It's kind of like how I say I turned a negative into a positive. You know, I figured like I got to a point to where I realized like, well, if despite everything that uh, happened to me that I went through, ultimately I have to get to a point of accountability and responsibility with myself. And I had to say, okay, well, this is where I'm at now. And now I understand a little bit about how I got here. And the main thing that stuck out to me was my anger, uh, how I reacted. And even to the point to where what I thought was happening wasn't really happening. Like, I thought it was a robbery, but it really wasn't a robbery. They were doing buy and bust operations. But what appeared to be a robbery triggered, you know, some um, unconscious things. That's why I said I, a seed fell upon the soil of my mind. When I told myself, you know, I'm not going to let anybody ever put a gun, you know, to my head again. Um, I, I see now that that kind of like was a seed that I planted and it went into that reactionary instinct aspect of me. So as soon as the situation presented itself that seemed like a robbery, 
I mean, I didn't have to think about it. It wasn't premeditated. It just was automatic. I had the gun in my hand and, you know, the one of the cops testified that I was jumping up and down. Um, and he, and, and went into when I shot, you know, um, and I see that that was that, that, uh, reptilian brain, you know, that was activated. I, I see that as a perfect demonstration of fight or flight. In that moment, I was deciding the reason I was jumping up and down that, that I can look, <clears throat> look back now and understanding a little bit about fight and flight. That was my body, like trying to make a decision. Do I fight? Do I run? Do I fight? Do I run? You know, and in that moment, I mean, I don't know if the trigger went off while I was jumping up and down. If I actually, I mean, I don't know why I shot that, honestly. Um, in, in my mind, I tried to rationalize it and I told them that I was just trying to warn them, you know, but I don't know why I shot. It's just my brain, my body took over. It was, you know, so. Well, the, the line that you used was um, a seed of trauma fell upon the soil of my mind and what sprung from it was a vow. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And in that vow, right, is like something that you mentally affirm right? Never again. I don't want to be in that situation ever again. Like that's something you can think, but that's also something that your body that like deep, as you said, subconscious, like deep in the core of your being was like, never again. Like I'm not going to allow myself to be, to be powerless and at the, at the whim of someone else's violence ever again. Right. All right. Cause like I said, in the story, I had, I had the gun for several months already uh, because what it was, was that my mother's boyfriend had bought a new house and uh, it was in the inner city or in the hood area in Cleveland. And I guess he was concerned about me being there by myself because I was going to be there for maybe two or three weeks by myself before him and my mom actually had moved in. So he gave me the gun and was like, don't ever take it out of the house. you know. And I never did. Like I said, I never did until after that robbery. After that, I, it, isn't, it didn't matter if I was going to McDonald's, Mr. Heroes, wherever I was at, except for school. I had it on me. Honestly, I had just recently uh, gotten home from uh, doing 13 months in juvenile detention. So uh, when I got out of juvenile detention, I think that played a big part in how everything went as well, because while I was there, I wasn't there for um, aggravated robbery. Um, I was, me and a younger friend of mine, we uh, were with his older uh, brother and another older male who were over 18 at the time, and they came up with an idea that they wanted to go try to do a robbery. We ended up getting arrested, and um, I ended up getting 13 months in juvenile detention. So while I was there, um, you know, it was basically like, but when, but there I discovered something while I was there. Because that was the first time I had ever been removed from what I was used to uh, coming up as far as like father not being there the drug addiction that was taking place in my family, you know. Um, and so there is more so, um, there was a certain point at first where um, there were no fights or anything like that going on. I mean, I wasn't getting into any fights. I mean, there were fights going on, but I, I didn't get into any fights personally. Um, you know, and there's nothing there. There was nothing there to do. And especially at that time, they had just opened it up. So like there wasn't any television for the kids or, you know, you know, basically like you could draw, you could do push-ups. They, they take you to go play some basketball or you can go exercise a little bit like that. But outside of that, 
sometimes some of the some of the staff would bring in music for us to listen to just to keep us quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But at a certain point, I had got a job working in the cafeteria. And so I would clean up and set certain stuff up, me and another guy, another friend of mine's. And after that, I ended up going uh, to work with the maintenance man and another another uh, juvenile um, around the, the the grounds. So even to the point to where I was started being allowed to go outside through the gates and like outside by myself, cutting grass and stuff like that without any supervision. I mean, I'm pretty sure they were watching me on camera, but they didn't have anybody out there watching me. Mm-hmm. And I would just when I was done, I would just come in and I mean, I would just press the buzzer and they would let me back through the gate so in that at that point they had developed a system where it went from like zero to four and it had colored shirts for it and if you got zero then uh you you were able to go to a certain pod uh with other people like that and you were able to go off grounds at certain times like they took us to go swimming one time um they took us to like the old country buffet or something like that and um and and I started to realize, like, wow, when I'm in a situation where, oh, pardon me, not to mention I was also uh, in school at the time as well, um, you know, just regular high school mm-hmm. while I was there. And what I found, what I found was that I was doing good with my schoolwork. Uh, I did well to the point by the time I got home, being that I had failed the fourth grade, when I when I got home, I had put myself almost back all the way in the 10th grade where I should have been. So I had like when I went to back to high school, I had ninth and tenth grade classes um, because I had to do so well on my work. And so I started learning that when I'm in a good situation, I can concentrate like I, I, I'm I making progress and I'm and I'm more mature about what I'm doing. I'm not involved in any riffraff or anything like that. And uh, so when I went home, I was like, I saved up three hundred dollars for my maintenance job. I was doing well in school. So my plan was I'm going to go home, go to school. Um, get my driver's license. I had a plan back then, you know, and then, but when I went home, I was surrounded by the same elements as before. And that kind of started kind of drawing me back into the old stuff. So you think that going to school in prison was better than going to school where you were from? Um, yeah, exactly. But it sounds like that was the case for you. Yeah, Exactly. Because there was no distraction, you were able to apply yourself directly. Right. I didn't have to worry about going to class and seeing um, this this boy with Jordans on and this boy with Jordans on and, you know, the, the style at the time. And I don't have it. I have to have what I had on like a couple of days ago and I'm going to wear it again another couple of days. You know, I had to worry about that. I didn't have to worry about the self-esteem, the self-esteem part. Um, you know, I didn't have to worry about the fact that in the fifth grade, I was in class and I'm sitting at a table with, and, and these are like some of these, I wouldn't necessarily say friends, but they were people that have been going to school with for a while. We're familiar with each other. Sometimes we after school, we might ride our bikes, or ride our bikes together. I know one of the guys and I know his older brother. I'm familiar with his older brother and his older brother actually used to sell crack so his older brother would i mean i guess some of my family members would call him and he would come by the house with his music loud you know with speakers in his car and i would roll with him and and i would always and i guess in that moment i would be like think to myself like i wish i was older and bigger because i would beat him up or something like that to keep him from coming over over here 
and I would get mad at my family members, like, you know, and then it's like, I have people that's living around me. So it's embarrassing. Mm -hmm. And so one day uh, we were in class and the table and the teacher stepped out for a minute. And one of the, my associates, he wasn't really my friend, but you know, we would ride bikes together or go to the park sometimes. He's he, and I don't, I don't even know if he was trying to be, um, if he was just trying to kind of let me know, or if he was trying to be funny. I don't really think that he was trying to like make a joke about it in the class. He and he was like basically like, uh, your mother's a nurse, right? Uh, your mother uh, basically, you know, gave <clears throat> my um brother, you know oral sex for you know crack you know and uh well he didn't say it like that but I just to put out have to graphic so and you know at the time I mean I did have other family like like other family members who were nurses as well you know and um so when I went home and told my mother she said that it wasn't her and it possibly could have been another family member or something like that but you know to me it didn't I, it was like it's the damage is already done. Like he said it in front, he said it louder the whole class. But what made it worse was that he said it, and then another one of my associates that sat next to me, he said it joke, re, like repeating what he said. He said, "You, you know, you." And I told him, "If you say it again, then I'm gonna, you know, do something to you." And he said it again, and we started fighting. You know, and um, the teacher ended up coming back in the class, and she got between us, and I threw the last punch and punched him in the eye. Mm. but it's just that that anger and everything that developed out of that that embarrassment and I'm already suffering from low self-esteem so I got to a point to where like I had a real anger issue like mm -hmm. and I think that I was acting out because of what I was going through and mm -hmm. also too like I, I I say in there I say that my face was hard like a statue you know I didn't really do a lot of talking in school and I even had some cousins and things that went to school with me and they would see me in a hallway girl cousins and they would say hi how you doing what's going on you know you're all right a lot of people always thought something was wrong with me because my face was always always serious mm. and so I learned to carry the serious face just to kind of deflect people from even wanting to talk to them. Mm. you know that, that way I wouldn't have to you know be that close to someone or something like that I could just move through the hallway and get to wherever I needed to be without hopefully that like i was hopefully like i had a cloak or something of invisibility or something like that well um, there's there's something to that i mean you just mentioned a minute ago wishing you were older because you'd yeah. be able to control the situation or you'd be able to protect someone right and i think that a lot of the experiences that you've shared from the experiences with with your dad at a very young age uh, all the way up to these formative school experiences and all the way to, to um, dealing with juvenile detention. Um, there's kind of like, like a need to speed up your development or at least try to simulate it, right? To be a man, even when you're definitely still a boy. I, I'm also reminded of... Um, the occultist Aleister Crowley, who said that he did an invisibility spell on himself every day for, I think it was three months. And he said that it wasn't that he literally became invisible as if there were no atoms there anymore or whatever for, for people to see with their eyes. But it was the case that having the intention not to be noticed caused people not to notice him. So he could walk down the street and he had been building up in himself 
for for various, I think, emotional reasons. He himself had drug addiction and trauma stuff going on in his own life and his, you know, everything. But he had been kind of casting this invisibility around him. And he said it was weird. Like people wouldn't see him. He would have to get people's wow. attention, you know, waiting in line somewhere or trying to say something to someone. And so when we have that feeling of like, I'm safer if I'm not seen, I think that there's really a kind of invisibility that begins to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I, it, seems, it seems like it worked for me as well. <laughs> you know, um, but I, I know like I, I just when I, I just I don't know. And it's weird how a child can do that. I mean, I don't know if it's something innate in us that the body, you know, kind of and the thoughts kind of come to. But I figure, like, if I have this hard face, then people won't bother me or talk to me. So having known you for a while, I feel like over the over the 10 years I've known you, I've seen I've seen that face. I've seen the can't read this enigma uh, strength that's still there. Uh, But I've also seen you laugh and I've seen you emote strongly. Um, When do you think you started to learn how to relate to that hard face? When did that start to change? Oh, when did that start to change? Um, so I know I shared with you previously in other conversations that leading up to, uh, it was almost like everything leading up to my incarceration was like some type of grand finale on something. Maybe a grand finale to the chapter of my life that I had been living. Um, and I would say that I had some experiences that to this day, I take like word warnings like maybe some type of divine warning or warning from the universe or from self. And um, some of those were dreams. Some of those were people actually saying to me, like, for example, there was a situation where um, I started probably like maybe two weeks prior to my incarceration. um, Me and my father had uh, got together and um, he, he, he was a mechanic. Uh, He used to go to school for, to be a mechanic and he, still knows how to fix cars and everything like that um but he um came back into my into my life for a minute and we were kind of like hanging out talking and things like that and he started talking about wanting to get an apartment and me coming to stay with him and uh i had already dropped out of school but i was talking we were talking about me going back to school because i wanted to go back i wanted to be in school and so we talked about going to an, uh, me going to another school and so at that point um, I started having like a little hope, like, okay, my dad's about to really step in, you know, after all this time. And he's talking about getting a place and me going back to school. He also took me over to one of his cousin's house, his cousin's house. And, uh, his cousin had a car for sale and he took me and showed me the car and, uh, told me that when he got his, his check, he would, um, cause my father, was on, well, he was on social security because he had a brain tumor when he, uh, you know, as, as I was a kid, he had a brain tumor. He actually had brain surgery um, for that. And um, so I don't know how that affected him as well um, in, in the drug addiction. So I have a friend with hanging out with me and me and my friend are hanging out. I went to go get my father one day. And this is after the robbery when I got robbed. So I have the gun on me. And I think I had it in the seat or something like that when he got in the car. And he said, where did you get the gun from? What you doing with that? You know, and I told him who I got it from. I told him that I was robbed and, you know, I just had it to defend myself, you know. And um, he basically was like, you need to get rid of that gun. 
you need to give it back or get rid of it before you hurt somebody or hurt yourself. That's what he told me. And I stopped and I thought about it for a moment, you know, and because it was, I knew he was telling me something right. But then what kicked in was, I ain't about to listen to you. You ain't been there for me. You don't care about me. You ain't protecting me. That's what kind of kicked in. So I'm like, no, I can't give it back. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I, I have to protect myself, you know. And um, shortly after that happened, um, I took my father over to uh, a friend of his house one day. And he was supposed to have been, he was expecting his check in the morning. And um, he just told me to come back in the morning and um, get him. And then we would go get the car. And, you know, so I'm hopeful. I'm like, okay, I'm about to get this car. I'm going, I'm, I'm at the same time. I, even though I still uh, had dropped out of school, um, I was, it was a certain point where I was, was looking for a job. So it was like, I think at that time I was starting to kind of like my mind was trying to expand. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was like, okay, well, if I get the car, I'm gonna get a job and I can mm-hmm. do some of the things I'm trying to do. I had got my license when I was 16, so I had my license. And he, uh, so I went to go get him that day. One knocked on the door early in the morning. A late, a lady came to the door. She said, "Are you looking for your dad?" I'm like, "Yes." He, she said that uh, he got something in the mail this morning. He called a cab and he left. So I, I have this car that he let me drive, and I can't find him. And, you know, back then we don't have cell phones. Uh, you know, I have a pager, you know, so I don't know how to get in touch with him. I don't know where he's at. So, uh, so the car, the how him getting the place and me going back to school and me getting the car and everything that that never happened. Hmm. So, and that um, was two weeks from the story that you just told. Yes, yeah, that was two weeks from that time. So, and and so I had different warnings from different other places as well. I mean, even my girlfriend at the time, she had skipped school to come uh, spend a day with me, um, like a couple of days before. But yeah, a couple of days before, and the well, actually a day before. And I tried to get her to come over and spend some time with me again the day that I actually had got arrested. And um, she um, she said, "I'm going to school today. I can't keep skipping skip school like every night, but I can't do it again today. I have to go to school, so I'm in trouble." So I was like, "Okay." Then I tried, I guess I tried to be manipulative with her. And I remember telling her, um, if you don't come over, I'm going to end up doing something stupid. Mm-hmm. And I, and at the time, you know, I mean, in my head, I was trying to manipulate her, you know, and uh, she just told me, she just, she just told me just to stay into the house that she, she told me to stay in the house that she would come see me when she got out of school. You know, so I had several different warnings. And I think the reason why I take them as warnings is because there was a moment where uh, even before I went to trial or anything like that, I was in a holding cell getting ready to go out uh, to see the judge. And I think it's around the time they were offering, offering me plea deals. And uh, I just happened to be, you know, um, sitting in the cell and uh, there was a Bible in there. I started reading the Bible and I got down and I started praying. And in that moment, it was just like a flood of things came to me, like a flood of your dad saying this, this, it was like, it was all like a universe, a warning from the universe of of some type of impending doom. If I don't, you know, I need to be careful type of thing. Mm -hmm. And now I'm going to share something else with you. And I don't really, um, I'm going to share it with you uh, for what it is, but I I do have a a take on it. So basically, one of the things that happened as well, I was talking to another girl and I had never met this girl. We were talking on the phone, but we were planning on meeting. 
And um, she was actually, uh, I was actually going to meet her as well that day that I had uh, got arrested. Um, but for some reason, um, she tried to call me or she, I know she paged me and I never, uh, I missed her, I overslept and I missed her page. So when I tried to call her, call the number back, it was a payphone somewhere. So we didn't, um, we never were able to connect. But I think like maybe a day or two before that, I was talking to her on the phone and um, we were talking about like meeting each other and everything like that. And she was like, but she was like, uh, I think it was a Sunday. I was like, what you doing today? She's like, I'm about to go to church. And she said, uh, she invited me to go to church with her and her family. And at that moment, um, I don't know. I mean, I know now why I said what I said, but uh, my response to her was go to church for what? And she was like, for God. And I actually had said, forget God. I said, God ain't never did nothing for me. You know? And, um, and so I guess in that moment as well, um, even, even going beyond titles of names of God and, and religion, for me, uh, at this point, it was a challenge to the, just the universe, period, the divine, mm -hmm. you know? And I see it as, a, as everything that happened to me as, okay, not like the universe was like, you're going to go through this. You know, I chose to do what I did, but that wisdom of the universe kind of like already knowing like what's going to transpire type of thing, it was more so like, it was a challenge. Mm -hmm. And it's almost as if the universe like showed me like I got to an understanding where like that wasn't valid what I said. If it wasn't for the universe, I wouldn't even be I wouldn't I wouldn't even exist. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't even still be alive. There's a lot of I've been shot at several times, you know, uh, since I was maybe even like 14. Um, and um, I never got shot. Um, there's been a lot of situations where I could have died. You know, I was actually robbed twice leading up to my incarceration, probably with the three-month period. Once, once um, before the home invasion, I actually, me and a friend of mine actually had got uh, uh, jumped and robbed. Um, and these, these guys had machetes and bats and things like that. They so twice, us with actually. Yeah, and sprayed us with mace and everything like that. Yeah, so the home invasion came after that. So it only reinforced, you know, that. Um, so, so yeah, in the, you know, in Christian theology, the one of the primary features of this world and our relationship to the divine is estrangement, right? That we feel cut off. And in the kind of experiences that you detailed, right? When would there even have been a time to relate to the divine? in all the things that you've said. Um, right. And I know uh, in a future uh, future episode, because uh, I hope that Sean will be joining me again for one of these, uh, we're going to dive a little bit more into uh, your journey with uh, the spirits and the spiritual. Um, but uh, I wonder when you knelt down in that cell, in the holding cell, in prayer, and you saw... These, what did you call them? These signs, these warnings. Yeah. Um, what did you feel in that moment? I remember it, it's kind of vague, but I do remember. And it was more so not only that I was praying, uh, but it was more so too, like I was just, it wasn't like I was just sitting like, God, please, you know, 
it was more so like, oh, like help me. Like I'm, 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 I'm trying to make sense of what's going on. They're telling me they want to give me 10 to 25 years and the judge is threatening me. And, you know, so it's like, I'm a kid. I don't understand like what's going on. Like I don't, I'm still trying to process how, what happened, you know, even though I was carrying the gun for protection and I did have crack cocaine on me because I was trying to, I was just trying to sell crack, but I wasn't from that area. So I wasn't on the streets, like on the corner. I was actually going to catch the bus to go to my uh, grandmother's house um, because my mom wouldn't let me use her car. So I was actually going to catch the bus and I actually had walked over to a, fr a friend's house and he wasn't home. So that's why I was walking down that back street. Um, but in that moment, it was more so I was crying. I was confused. And then it was like, once I started praying, it just, I don't know. It was like, I just had this instant knowing of you challenge the universe. Um, I tried to, you tree warnings were sent to you, multiple warnings, even up to the point to where I had that dream that same morning that I was in juvenile detention again. I literally had that dream that morning that I was in juvenile detention and I'm walking across the yard with a, the laundry net bag with the state issue in it. And as I get to the uh, housing unit, the boys, there's, there's boys standing outside, boys that I'm familiar with from when I was actually there. Like I'm at Circle building the dream. And they're laughing at me like, aha, we knew he was going to come back. We knew he was going to come back. And I wake up and I'm, and I'm laying there and I'm like, wow. I, like, and I told, I was like, and I said to myself, I remember saying to myself, I ain't never going back. I even called a friend of mine like immediately. And I, I was like, man, I just had a dream that I was back in juvenile detention. I was like, man, I ain't never going back. You know, and, and that friend as well, we were supposed to, I mean, you know, I was, he, we were supposed to connect that day as well. And then he had something he had to do. And um, he, you know, I told him, I was like, well, you take it too long. I don't know. I'm about to go out to, you know, where my grandmother stayed or something like that. And he was like, man, just stay in the house and wait for me. You know, so it was like, everybody's telling me to stay in the house. Everybody's telling me to wait. Everybody, you know. And even and your even, dreams, pre-cog yeah. precognitive, right? Like, like a, yes. there's a, a writer named Eric Wargo who wrote a book called Time Loops about how the future influences the past. And it's not that, you know, science hasn't caught up to this yet, but yeah. the, you know, the, the world is full of stories of people who have dreams and experiences that tell them about the future. Um, one thing I want to encourage you in is, you know, just I'm, I'm like stuck with that image of you um, praying and having, you said that several times that your mind was trying to expand and it sounds like that was one moment where it expanded a lot, where you had this sense of gnosis, this knowledge that included like all of these past experiences and moments and signs. And, you know, in the Old Testament, when the prophets come in and tell people, hey, you missed a sign, there are a lot of times uh, lashing the whip of guilt and shame. Right. Oh, God's yeah. been trying to tell you something and you missed the sign. Right. Yeah. And one thing I want to encourage you in, and I, I know that this is something, like I said, that hopefully we'll get to discuss more uh, yeah. in the future, but uh, is not to see that as as something shameful in the sense that people with a lot less suffering in their life, a lot less um, people with a lot more privilege. Right miss the same signs 
We all miss the signs. That happens. Many right. people never have the moment where they even see the signs that were there. Right. Does that make sense? And so yeah, that that moment of waking up, I think, um, having just heard that for the first time, but knowing a lot about what's to come with your story, okay. uh, sounds like a a important one important moment in a series of revelations and openings and enlightenments that you were to begin going through um, yes. from that point on. So I just, I, I want to thank you for sharing that moment. No problem. I mean, I appreciate, uh, you know, um, you even asking because I mean, it was a very um, significant moment. I've had a lot of different, I mean, I'm pretty sure everyone does, but you know how you have that, that one significant moment that kind of like puts a mark on that, on that timeline. And you can go back to that mark. You'll never forget that mark. And that's, that was one of those significant moments where it just all came to me at once. Like the warnings, the dream, um, you know, what was going, you know, what was going on. And not only that, but when they arrested me. So I talk about when, after I fired the shot, I turned and I ran in another direction. I basically ran the way that I came. And when I got to the main street, which was Union Avenue, when I made a right, you know, I first, I stopped running um, as I was out and I started walking. And I realized, I looked down, I was like, I still got this gun in my hand. I didn't even, I mean, I was just running. And I didn't even know, like, I just, I was just still running. <laughs> you know, I didn't know, that the, I didn't know that the whole time there were three police officers in a city water truck following me up the street. Like they were following me. They didn't make a move on to me, on me until I actually turned the street. So I went up like at least a two block distance. And um, so they were following me. And But I realized I had the gun in my hand still. And I had on some like nylon uh, sweatpants, but they were nylon. And so I had, I knew, I, I was aware that the gun was still loaded. And, I'm, and I, I mean, I guess, I understood, like, I can't run with this gun, like, in my pants. So I put it up and started walking, turned the corner, started walking. That's when a blue car came up the street that was in front of me. And it had a blue siren, like, in the old school movies where they take the siren, put it on top. Mm -hmm. It was, like, that type of thing. And so I immediately, like, froze. And it was, like, it was happening so fast. I just remember, like, kind of, like, in some, some form thinking, like, just surprised that the police were there. And like, where'd the police come from? And then it was almost as if like, run. You know, I mean, that's mm -hmm. what I've that's what I've learned to do anyway since a Flight. child. I mean, we, yeah, it's like always. I mean, we never, you know, coming up where I come from, uh, coming up, we don't you don't trust the police. You know, um, they you're you're treated in certain ways in in the community. It's even being a young, you know, uh, black male. And um, so it's like you it's like you get trained to like you see the police run, you know, type of thing. And so that automatically kicked me a run. And then it was like I knew, like, I don't want to get caught with this gun. Yeah, I didn't pull it out. to point. I didn't I never pointed it at any of the officers at that point. And I'm going to tell you a, a very important part that's connected to that to that um, piece as well. But as I pulled the gun out and turned to run, literally, literally, as I'm turning there's a that city water truck with three officers are is like right there. And one of the cops is hanging out the door and he starts shooting at me as I'm turning around. He shot at me like maybe six or seven times. And I think that um, 
I tried to, under, I mean, it just happened the way that it happened and it happened so fast. Next thing I know, I just fell to the ground and I dropped the gun and, and they're stumping me in my face. And then they got their head, they're surrounding me with their guns drawn. Police don't move. Hmm. Um, but what I think happened at that point is I think my body shut down in the face of death. You know, my, my life did flash before my eyes. That's it's true what they say. Your life flashes before your eyes. And, and even though it happened so fast, it was like everything was in slow motion. And um, and I was just completely like dazed, confused. I didn't understand what was going on, what had just happened. Like I said, I was minding my own business, just going where I was going. And, um, and they approached me. Mm. So but I do I think that um, my body shut down. And I don't know, I mean, like, I don't know why I'm still here. Sometimes I'm like, why am I still here? Especially when there's been story after story of people getting shot and killed by the police. Absolutely. You know, and he, and he was very close to me. And so I'm, I'm just thinking, like, what happened? Like, how, why, how I didn't get shot? Like, I'm literally, like, laying on the ground. They're arresting me. They asked me how old I was. I'm like, I'm 17. They don't believe me. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm 17. And, um then you know i'm being sarcastic with them because i mean even when, when they're in the uh like the they had um police regular like patrol cars there also they maybe had like two or three that pulled up when they ambushed me mm-hmm. but um the officers they that were driving the blazer it was two officers they got into one of the cruisers and actually drove me down to the police station so the guy that jumped out and the other guy that was in the car was driving and so they're talking to me and you, you thought you was going to shoot at the police and go home and tell your friends. Yeah, you thought you was going to get away and go tell your friends like it was cool or something like that. And I, and I was just letting them know, like, I didn't know you were the police. Mm-hmm. But they start when they start asking me about, like, where'd you get the gun from and where'd you get the drugs? You know, I started being sarcastic or just saying stuff like I, I a friend, I told him I found the gun behind a dumpster. Um, I told him that I made drugs myself, you know. Um, I told, I actually told them that I, that I smoked the drugs. I told them that I had a drug problem. You know, I guess in my mind, I was thinking like maybe I would get some tr- drug treatment or something like that and not go mm-hmm. to jail or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, but, and so that's when the, all the other stuff came into play. I mean, they were already uh, upset at me for the, for shooting the gun, mm-hmm. you know? So the whole, as we entered into the police station, uh, one, the officer that jumped out the truck, he was like, I can kill you, right? We can kill you right now. And put you in this dumpster and nobody will know they ever know or care. And then, like I said, the lady, uh, the one off uh police officer uh, lady, um, while I was being interrogated, um she came and walked up and was like, if I was there, I would have killed your black ass. And then again, at a certain point, I was being held in a cell, and the officer that jumped out on me, he had came to see me at one point and told me to come to the bars and kind of grab me and pull me up to the bars to make me, you know, like hit myself. And um and then kind of like pushed me back, but he told me he was like he, he told me again he's like I should have killed you, so in my as a child, I'm trying to process this like I almost just got killed, and but then it's like it seems like there's this this the same voice mm-hmm. speaking through to these different officers telling me like I should have killed you I wish I would have killed you and I'm trying to understand like why do you want to kill me like who is it that and, wants me dead. Yes. And it seems like there's something else beyond them that's telling me, like, I would I should have killed you. But it, but there's almost like two, like there was a hand over me to where it was like, no, you can't kill him. Mm. So it's almost like I would, who, there was a. Yeah. Who would you say is the voice? Like if we were going to put it in the 
Like, who was it that spoke those that word over and over again that we should have killed you or we tried to kill you kind of thing? Right. So if I was to put it, put a uh, name to it as to what people might say it might be uh, in the Christian uh, way of life, it would be Satan. In the uh, Islamic way of life, it would be Shaitan. And in the comedic uh, way of life, it would be Set or Setian. Mm. And so that's what I kind of like now. I kind of that's when I think about that. That's what it feels like it was to me. Like there the was adversary. Some, yeah, there was some adversary or some force that was trying to like basically take me out and wanted to take me out. But there was a hand, some type of divine hand there that said no. And held you. And, right. Mm. That, that didn't allow me to perish. Can and, I ask um, um Sure. Can, can I ask how how many years in total did you do for that incident? Um, seventeen years. Out of the twenty-one to thirty-six year sentence, seventeen years. So and, uh, you were yeah. in for as long as you had been alive up to that point. In other right. words, you were seventeen when the incident happened, and then you did seventeen. Right. Basically, yeah. And it's interesting that you just asked me that because I've, I've come to that same type of thought process myself. Like, wow, my first 17 years was this. And then I have 17 years of incarceration. You know, when I came home, I was 34. And so to time travel a little bit. So 17, 34, but one year ago, which was seven years from when you got out, I, I think, uh, when yeah. you and I started reconnecting again more on, a, on the regular. And uh, one of the things you told to me was, uh, that you have an intention to work with your story more. Uh, yes. And I'm just wondering that now that we're a year out from you saying that and that you and I have been engaged in a process, both one-on-one, um, but also through Healing Broken Circles and and also other parts of your life, you've been working with your story in a lot of different ways. Um, yes. what, is it, what does it mean to you? What, what has happened? What has transpired uh, in this past year after you verbalized and and stated that intention to work with the story more intentionally what's what's happened since then well um i would say more revelations um i would say more determination so i've been working on a book about my life and my incarceration it's not necessarily like a kind of blame type game or I didn't do this type of thing or, you know, or I mean, it is in there that this is this was wrong with how I was handled and processed. But it's more so like. You could choose. The positive over the negative. You don't It's more so there's trauma in young boys that is not being dealt with and more trauma is being inflicted upon these these juveniles, these kids um, that have already been through a lot. More is being inflicted by how they're being treated by the system. You know, I just started working on an essay and um, the essay is about juvenile uh, just justice. And, it's, and the title of it is Throwing Away the Key. You know, I feel like, I felt like the key was thrown away for me, on me. You know, um, no one asks me, like, where's your mother? Where's your, where's your father? Why are you behaving like this? You know, um, what happened to you? 
you know, like no one did a, a thorough or at or even at all any type of mental evaluation of me, you know, to try to figure out like why is this 17-year-old boy carrying a gun and why is he trying to sell crack and you know, things like that. And I was just processed through a system. And basically, you know, what I want to talk about is just the fact that, you know, there is violent crime amongst juveniles, amongst kids. Um, but I think it's more so more so a situation of like um, how in the in the Bible it says Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I think it's that type of situation. These kids don't know what they're doing. They don't know what's influencing them. They don't know um, that they're in survival mode, that they're doing the best that they can because mama, uh, daddy's not there or mama's not there or this parent or that parent or this family member is on drug addiction. You know, or even if they're even with their family, they might be in a foster home. So there's a lot of different trauma elements that are affecting kids. And then you have the people that's grownups that uh, are in specifically in positions of power to be able to really help them and to dig into what's going on. But instead, it's being chosen to let's try these juveniles as adults. Let's put them, let's put them away, lock them up, throw away the key. Let's lock away these predators as they coined the term back in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Super predators, um, yeah. Yeah, that type of thing. And um, and so it's like, um, I think that it's it's a rush to, it's a rush judgment without really understanding like what's going on with these kids, you know? Um, And it needs to stop, Mm. you know? I mean, a whole, I feel like that's, when you asked me earlier, um, it's not just like, like for example, like right now when I'm at, when I'm working, um, there's several different things that can cause me to have a bad day. One of those things is like I've been going over my story for the storytelling um, and also for writing my book. Sometimes I write while I'm at work. And so sometimes I might get to a point to where I look at what happened to me in certain instances. And I'm like, that's really messed up. And then looking at the power structure and that, and, and that hopelessness, that that feeling of hopelessness that comes in comes with looking at a power structure and you're just one person yeah and you know and um and like where do you when a person needs really some real help and justice like where is it at why is it so much suffering mm. and when i get into the point where like i like i was 17 i did i was i was alive for 17 years and then i got arrested and, and was gone for 17 years i never seen you know uh, you know my being 18, you know, on the street in society, I never experienced 18 in freedom, um, 19 in freedom, any of my 20s, my 20 years in, in freedom, you know, so I feel like um, even though I've matured over the years, uh, I've grown in a lot of d- different ways, I've developed character and principle and things of that nature. Uh, when I One of the things that I ran into when I came home, um, that I kind of prepared for, but really wasn't prepared for was the fact of that, even though I had experience, I mean, like graphic design and I went to college and I got my GED and I've learned other things just on my own from my own reading and studying, but nothing prepared me for the fact that I don't know anything about relationships. I don't know anything about living with a woman, Hmm. you know, uh, you know, like, like what I have is still based off. I mean, at that time, it was still based off of uh, like freshly coming home. It was still based off what I knew as a, as a child when mm-hmm. I was 17, mm-hmm. you know, 
I didn't know about like, you know, how to deal with certain things, you know? And so, and, and that goes in the other area. So I found myself like, I guess, feeling like a boy compared to certain, I think, things yeah. and realizing I didn't have that. I lacked that experience and that growth in that mm. area. And so it was, and so kind of feeling frustrated at that and, uh, and realizing like, wow, like that, they I like coming to the conclusion, like if I could say this to the judge or any other people, the prosecutor, like you, you took my life from me. And you didn't have to do it like that, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so that can really kind of sometimes when I, especially when I'm at work, it can really kind of like break me down a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, just feeling like that hopelessness of, man, you took my life from me. Mm-hmm. And you didn't have to do, you didn't have to do me like that, you know? And I wasn't even, I wasn't that monster that you called me. That's not who I was. I was, I was in a lot of pain. There's a theme, know? a theme in your story of robbery, right? But the greatest heist was the one that occurred in that courtroom, yeah, right? Where they made a boy appear as a monster who wasn't a monster, right? And um, and even the the toxicity of the defense attorney saying, take it like a man. Right. You're not even a man to take it that way. You know what I mean? Like it, and the the kind of of robbery that occurred there in that courtroom. I just, I want to highlight that. And I want to also say though, and I want to leave on this note as sort of a prelude to our next conversation, hopefully our next episode together, um, which is that the transformation that you did on the definition of the word monster as an example of something I've seen you do many other times and many other ways in your life of taking, as you said, a positive into a negative and um, it reminds me of the emerald tablet of Hermes Jehudi, uh, the, the alchemical transformation of what is called the medicine of metals and the stone of the wise, right? The, the philosopher's stone that allows you to turn anything into any other thing if you have the right kind of understanding. And that that understanding from where I sit is like a union of a few things. It's like compassion, wisdom, energy, clarity. Right. And when we when we put all those things, it's like a a fire, a heat, a sacred fire that changes things. And I've always seen you as somebody in that in possession of that sacred fire. And uh, next time when we when we talk, I think we can get into a little bit of your spiritual biography, um, because I think that there are many events that you've shared with me over the years that have happened even from a young age through your incarceration now into your adulthood um, that have put you in possession of that medicine of metals and stone of the wise and that ability to transmute your experiences. And just because we can transmute, just because we're capable, just because you're capable of that and you in a way, when you made that decision with the bedsheet, right, that was a pivotal transmutation. But that doesn't take away the pain and it doesn't take away the injustice either. Right. Right. Um, so I think we can sit here today and both name that what went down in that courtroom was bullshit and it was wrong. Um, and I think there's still more to come about that. And I think that you shouldn't 
get on yourself for feeling anger and sadness and and even hopelessness in the face of the level of injustice, right? That the 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 quote unquote justice system robbed you of what remained of your childhood and of the formative years of your adulthood. But we can yeah. we can hold that and also hold, right, in the two truths sense that you are an alchemist who took uh, a meal that no human should should have to eat or be able to eat um and not just not just swallowed it but swallowed it in such a way that you you became something much beyond um what anyone could have expected and uh so i look forward to us being able to dive even more so in, into that part of your story as well so see this uh, dear listeners, as part one of hopefully a many-phased uh, conversation between Sean and I about um, some of his teachings and some of his uh, wisdom that he's built over the years. And uh, Sean, I want to thank you and see if you have a, a sort of final word for for the listeners uh, for this episode one. Sure. Um, you spoke to uh, the alchemy or the trans the transmutation of turning something a negative into a positive. And that's the attitude and the approach I took to life because I realized that in that moment, um, having tied those two sheets around my neck and contemplating, like imagining how it would be if I just threw myself over the range and committed suicide uh, and was serious in that moment, like in tears and ready to do it, ready to go. But having, you know, just having that thought of, wait a minute, you know, in the midst of the anger, the bitterness that was developing in me um, towards how I was done wrong in that moment, it just occurred to me as well, just like, you know, the warnings and everything occurred to me, like, no, I can't give up. I can't just lay down like this. I don't care how long, I don't care how long it takes, whatever I have to do to get through this time, I will be strong, you know, and, and honestly, it was, it may have even been the judge calling me a monster that did it because I, I could never let that go. It just always, since he said it, it stuck with me. Like, I'm not a, you know, you, why are you calling me a monster? That was the most hurtful inhumane thing to say to a child, you know? And just because someone turns 18, it's, it, 18 doesn't automatically make you an adult. You get instant, you just get, when you turn 18, you get a bag full of, here's logic, here's rationale, here's reason, here's maturity. You know what I mean? You don't get that. No. So, um, and just, um, so just coming to that conclusion that I'm going to show you a real monster, Mm. one that is highly successful. I'm going to overcome this incarceration. And not only am I going to, create a better future for myself because I looked at it like this. If I could create by my actions, the situation that I was in, the manifestation of prison, then if I go in the more positive and a more rightful route, I can create any type of future that I want for myself. If I do the opposite of what I did. And so that's been what I've been, the alchemy I've been working on. And, um, but now that, like I said, the fact that not only to show you that I'm not a monster, but I I really am fighting. I fought my case the whole time Mm -hmm. before I got, even when I got my parole board, even when I got parole, I was in the Ohio Supreme Court trying to be heard, but I still plan on fighting. 
I still plan on, hopefully my goal is to get before someone to have to be investigated or have my case heard again. Um, because I know that it was wrong how it was done to me and the fact that he called me a monster. Be on the lookout for Sean's book, I Think You're a Monster, due summer 2021. You can follow Sean on Instagram at sdukes712. You can also follow me, Adam Wetterhan, and my website, asatkora, A-S-A-T-K-H-O-R-A dot com. I will make sure to post an update about Sean's progress with his book and where you can order it once he gets to that stage of completion. Thank you very much for listening to Resonant Zones. Stay tuned.